0: Well, Father, that is our prayer this morning, that uh, you as the potter would take the clay and bring about change, mold us and make us and conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus. Father, we need our hearts softened and we need to be sensitive to your word and to the leading of your Holy Spirit. So take your word and through that ministry of the Holy Spirit, accomplish your purposes, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles, please, and turn with me for an introduction to Acts chapter 12. We are still in our 1 Timothy series, and to help us lay a groundwork as we continue in 1 Timothy chapter 2 on prayer and Paul's instruction to Timothy as to some of the specific things that need addressed concerning prayer in the church at Ephesus where Timothy was the young pastor... I want us to read a most remarkable story from Acts chapter 12. This is just an incredible scene. And I want you to engage your minds with it as I read, and you can follow along in your copy of God's Word if you wish. This was a difficult time in the early church, much in many ways as the believers in Nigeria are experiencing. They were being persecuted. They were being killed. Their leadership was being attacked. Let's read the account of Acts chapter 12 and an incident in the life of the Apostle Peter. I wonder if you can see yourself in the church that is praying here at this time. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword And when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial, and I assume execution like James, after the Passover. Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. What was the church doing? Who were they praying for? Peter. Where was Peter? In prison. prison. How many guards? 16. Four sets of four under high security. The church is very concerned. One of their leaders has just been beheaded by the sword. Peter now is going to be going through a kangaroo court. It's all about politically driven popularity of the Herod. The night before, verse 6, Herod was to bring him to trial. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. By the way, it's worth noting, isn't it, that Peter was sleeping the night before his trial. That's a good picture, isn't it? Notice the conditions. He was bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. He was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. I take it, chained directly to them. Suddenly, verse 7, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and he woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea that the angel was, that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. He's not sure if he's awake even. They passed, verse 10, the first and the second guards, and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself. Ooh. That's pretty cool, don't you think? Huh? I'm telling you. And they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then, verse 11, Peter came to himself and he said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. Excuse me. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door! All right, what were they praying for? That he would be saved, right? Rescued. Released. all right. And I take it it's an all-night prayer meeting. I take it that it's like breaking dawn. She's so excited. She doesn't let him in. Look what verse 15 says. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be an angel. Peter's at the door. No, he's not at the door. You're out of your ever-loving mind. You're seeing an angel. Can you relate to that? Praying for what? Praying for God to rescue Peter. God rescues Peter. And we say, nah, it didn't happen. But Peter kept on knocking. He's knocking away. They opened the door and they saw him and they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and he described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers, I guess not, as to what had become of Peter. And after Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he crossed, examined the guards, and he ordered that the poor rascals be executed. Wow. Do you ever get frustrated with God not answering your prayer? You ever ask God to do things, sometimes great things, and the fact of the matter is, you don't even really believe God's going to answer that prayer. Or if he did, if somebody said, here's the answer, you would say, no, nah, it's not true. What kind of praying is that? What, what's going on in the church that their prayers aren't being answered? Well, clearly here, it just seemed beyond what even God could do. As we turn now to 1 Timothy chapter 2, I want us to realize that what's happening in the church is a problem, and the problem is their prayers aren't being answered. In fact, they are praying inappropriately. We don't know exactly what the problem is, but we do know, as you'll recall, that the Apostle Paul, understanding very deeply the ministry at Ephesus and the church there, has traveled... To another region, he has written a letter back to young Pastor Timothy and he's addressing these problems and clearly one of the problems is that the church evidently either hadn't hardly been praying at all because you're going to see as we reread our text that he's calling them to prayer. They certainly had not been praying for their leaders of their country. They were not praying evangelistically for souls to be saved. And then evidently in the corporate worship, when people, men particularly, were praying, they were approaching God inappropriately. Do you know that you can do that? You can approach God inappropriately to the degree that, not even lacking faith, but for even other mechanical reasons, for other spiritual reasons, God will not answer their prayers. They evidently didn't even expect God to answer their prayers. God was not answering their prayers. And there's a reason God wasn't answering their prayer. And my concern is is that the same problem they had going in their church could very well be a problem that we could have in our church. We had better learn from Paul's instruction to Timothy that we approach God appropriately. Let's read our text again and find out what we're talking about here. And let's dig in. This chapter 2 is entitled in my Bible, and maybe you have a heading similar to it, Instructions in Worship. One of the things we know from the context of the passage is that by and large, what Paul is instructing Timothy to teach the church is how they should function corporately as a church gathered. That that these are things that they should be making a priority, and this is the way things should go. We will learn, however, that the effectiveness of our corporate worship often has everything to do with the preparation in private before we ever get to worship publicly. Let's read the text, 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. I urge you, Paul has strong language, doesn't he? I urge you, first of all, the priority is prayer, that requests, prayers, intercessions, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone pray for the king pray for all those in authority why so that we might live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness so that we can grow spiritually this is good and pleases god our savior this pleases god when we do this who wants, verse 4, This our God wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. You should be praying for this, praying for people to be saved. And they have to come to this knowledge of the truth because there is only one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. All roads don't leave to heaven. Everybody isn't going to be with God in heaven. We must pray that their eyes would be open to the truth. There's one God, one mediator between God and men. It's the man Christ Jesus. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Who gave himself, verse 6, as a ransom. He traded himself in for the sinners, for all men. The testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, verse 7, I, Paul, was appointed a herald, a messenger, a preacher, an apostle, one who bears the good news. I am telling the truth. I am not lying and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. And I want men everywhere, that means in all the churches, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer, without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold pearls, gold or pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner, But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. I have good news, ladies. We're only going to address the men today. (laughs) But starting next week, we'll see what Paul has to say about the women. As I said, Paul, writing this letter to young Pastor Timothy, is addressing problems in the church. And he's telling Timothy, after chapter 1, you've got to straighten them out doctrinally and spiritually that they get the gospel right. And then chapter 2, we can only assume from what he's instructing Timothy to tell them and he's urging them, is you've got to pray. The church isn't praying. Pray these kinds of prayers. Pray for these kind of people. Pray that they'll be saved. But then he gives further instruction, and as I would have suggested already that he is particularly speaking specifically about corporate worship time. Verse 8 is our verse for today that we will get through as he addresses the men. I want men everywhere, okay, that's all around in God's church and in all the churches, to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. It doesn't look like that high impact of a verse when you first read it. But I think that you'll realize by the end of our message time that the Apostle Paul packs a lot in this phrase, in this sentence. There's evidently a reason that they haven't been praying. There's evidently a reason that prayers aren't being answered and it's not even necessarily a lack of faith and a surprise when God does answer prayer. But as I said, they have evidently been approaching God inappropriately. We have multiple examples of this in our Old Testament particularly. Remember the sons of Korah? Exodus chapter 16, what an incredible story. They confront Moses, they argue with him that they could could bring the incense and the prayer and worship and lead in worship, and Moses said, no, you can't, and God says, get out of the way. Moses opens up the ground and swallows them all up in an earthquake, closes the ground back, then kills a bunch of more people in a plague that day. Why? Because they were inappropriately coming to God. Malachi Chapter 1, interesting passage. This is still Old Testament. Approaching God meant going through a priest, a representative. It meant using animals for sacrifice to picture the blood that would be shed for the remission of sin. This is pre-cross. Malachi writes there and God records through Malachi. says, who do you think I am? They had dumbed down their worship. They had become so casual in their worship. They had become so careless in their approach to God that they were bringing lame and blind animals to the sacrifice and sick animals. It was for their own personal convenience and their own personal comfort. Time to bring an animal sacrifice, a sheep or a calf or whatever, to bring an animal sacrifice to the temple, to the priest. And you're looking over your animals and you got some fine ones. They're beautiful. I'm not going to mess with them. i got this sick one over here. Let's take him and offer him for a sacrifice. That way I can take my good ones to to the market on Monday and make more money. God says, try doing that with your governor. Who do you think I am? Your governor wouldn't even accept these things. And then he goes on in the passage and it's powerful. And God says, I just wish someone would shut the doors. Keep everybody out. Don't come to me if you're going to come to me like that. Well, now we're New Testament, and so you say, well, look, I've got this great intercessor. I've got this mediator between me and God. It's the man Christ Jesus. Praise God that we have him. He keeps the door open. But I think there's some principles that are applicable in our culture, in our society, where everything has become casual with God. He's my big buddy up in the sky. God and me have an arrangement. We really understand each other. We're tight. God knows that I can't make all this happen just right, so it's like this and that. And I'm saying, I wonder if God sometimes has people unfit to sing worship songs to Him, unfit people standing up to pray before Him, and I wonder if on the inside He's thinking, just shut the door of that church. Just stop it. If you're going to approach me like that, Well, let's dig into this verse and see what we think Paul's teaching here. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. The first thing I want you to see in this verse is what I think Paul is not teaching, okay? I think there's two things that Paul is not teaching. First of all, I don't think the point of his passage and the point of his instruction is to teach that women don't pray. And you say, we're from a pretty conservative Bible church here. We try to take the Bible for what it says. We try not to read into it. We try to let the Bible speak. Words mean something. And if words mean something, then words mean this. And and right away we read, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. See, men are supposed to pray, not women. I don't think that's true at all. And we have many other texts of Scripture that show us that women pray, that all believers are to pray, And that even in the context of church, women can pray. We're going to see in future messages from this passage as he gives further instruction to the women that men are indeed to lead the local church. And that in public corporate prayer, it is appropriate for the men to pray. But he's not saying women can't pray at all. So I don't think that at all. He's not teaching women are not to pray the second thing is kind of interesting, especially in a church like ours, is he's, I don't think he's teaching that when you pray, you have to lift up your hands. He says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands. He knows that when the men pray, they're going to lift up their hands. And I think the point of the passage that is applicable to us today, particularly, is that when you lift up those hands in prayer, are they holy? Have you approached him properly? You see, these are... Jew, in the context of Jewish worship, coming out of the synagogue, the men would have prayed with their hands up. Though only the men prayed in the synagogue. The men would have lifted their hands in prayer. Now they're followers of Christ. They're under the instruction of the apostles. They're meeting in the temple square or they're meeting in a community spot or they're meeting in a home. And when the believers gather to worship and pray, the men still lead in prayer and the men still lift up their hands. Paul knows that the men, when they pray, are going to lift up their hands. His whole point is, you better watch what kind of hands you're lifting up. But since he brought up lifting hands, let's talk a little bit about that for just a second. Particularly at Fellowship Bible Church. Every once in a while, I see people raise their hands when we're singing. Or people will maybe raise their hand while we're praying. Do you know that there's nothing wrong with that at all? In fact, we can see here that it's biblical. We know from other passages of Scripture. In fact, Paul's not teaching about the configuration of your body in prayer. We could probably list at least a dozen body forms that you could be in to pray scripturally. Clearly in the Bible, you could pray down on your face. You could pray on your knees. You could pray reaching to the sky. All kinds of things. So why don't we at Fellowship Bible Church raise our hands more if it's okay and if it's not unbiblical? Well, that's an interesting question, and let me just give you a little historical context. Probably about 50 years ago, in our conservative Bible churches, in the coming out of the 50s and into the 60s, there was a movement that kind of reawakened across our country that we call the charismatic movement. Some of you are very familiar with what I'm talking about. Others are not. This would be many believers in Christ, Bible-believing Christians, for the most part, who believed that there was a resurgence um, in the mid 20th century of the sign gifts of the apostles. We would teach and hold to the teaching that Miracles, somebody being able to do a miracle like Peter and Paul and them could do. Guys, like Paul's preaching and a guy falls off the third story window, Eutychus, and falls down and dies. Paul goes down there raises him back to life. You know? And uh, the kinds of miracles and signs that Jesus did and that the apostles did... And there became, it became very popular across our country to have a resurgence of the sign gifts, that people have the gifts of miracles. We believe that that was a, a mark of an apostle, that that was given for a specific purpose at the earliest stages of the church, and that with uh, further instruction and completion of our scripture, that these gifts faded away. That people cannot do miracles. God can do miracles, but people can't do miracles. If you can, come see me. I want to get rid of these glasses okay? I shouldn't joke like that. Very sincere people believe it. And, and people have seen God answer prayer, but we don't teach or believe that you have the spiritual gift of healing. Secondly, um, they were also believing in um, speaking in tongues. And it wasn't like specific languages, but it was more like... Um, Uh, A a jibber-jabber and outspokenness. And often with it came a a worship where you put your hands in the air and you swayed and you you were loud and, and the church was very active. And conservative pastors like my dad and then the Bible church movement really reacted against the signs and the healings and the tongue speaking of this charismatic movement and it became very much something that you wouldn't do in your church. And so as a result, many of us grew up in churches where when you sing and when you pray, you stand still. Because if you put your hands up in the air, you might be a charismatic. Now, I don't think that that is the connotation near so much in the last 10 years or more in our country. And I don't think it's wrong, but... At all. And in fact, if you feel comfortable, you can do that. Nobody's going to usher you out of here. You start talking in tongues and barking like a dog coming down the middle aisle will probably usher you out. But you can raise your hands. You won't get ushered out of here. I think you need to do it in such a way that you don't disturb worship. I've been in services, the most dramatic services that I've ever been in are in Malawi, Africa. When I minister there, Lord willing, you'll be hearing more soon, Lord willing, in May, I will be preaching at their pastor's conference on the ground in Malawi. I look forward to that. But I've been there twice already, and when you're in the churches with Yohani and Love, and the pastors are gathered, or if you're in the village churches, and they say, It's time to pray. Everybody starts to pray at the same time. You know that? You've been in those kind of churches? At my church where I grew up, one person prays. Everybody doesn't pray at the same time. You all join your voices. And it's very, very loud. And I'm on the platform with the preachers at, in Malawi in the African church. And Yohani's there, and Yohani's praying. God, visit us. he starts to pound his hands, and he's, God, really intense, strong prayer. And it's going on throughout. Do you know what I'm doing? I'm like, I find this very difficult to focus right now. <laughs> I don't know exactly what to do with all this noise in our church. What is it? It's, it's our tradition. It, it's my upbringing. And I personally, I've referenced this before, even not too long ago, find it very difficult in a public place where I think people are watching to put my hands up in the air. You know, maybe that's a shame on me, but... I have a hard time getting used to putting my hands up publicly. I can do it in private really well. You, you know you're not there, and you don't see it walking in the woods back here, worshiping and my hands up, and I have a freedom to do that. I never speak in tongues by myself in the woods, by the way. <laughs> and And so if you're comfortable, you can do that at Fellowship Bible church. I, I think that's up to you, and that's fine, but I'm not necessarily promoting it or saying that we ought to have our hands up in the air. And as I said, I don't think that Paul is teaching in this passage that you have to lift your hands up when you pray. I think that what Paul is teaching here is that you better have holy hands when you lift them up. And we're going to see that here in just a minute. So I think there's one other comment maybe that is helpful, and that is I think there's another element of worship And it's from people who come from a more high church background and a liturgical church background and are now in our Bible churches or our independent, conservative, Bible Baptist type churches. And they find it very hard when you're raised up in a more high church or liturgical church. You don't make noise and you don't. It kind of comes from our Quaker background, our Quaker roots, in the sense of you are to be still before the Lord, you're not to make noise and you're not to move. So it's mostly culture and tradition, and uh, as I said, I don't think that hand moving is so much more totally a sign that you're a charismatic at all, and it clearly is referenced in Scripture, and it is clearly not unbiblical to do that. I just personally am not comfortable with it, I find it distracting. Well here, what is Paul saying then? If he's not saying that only men pray and that hands must be lifted up, I want you to see that he has two concepts here that he's very concerned about that have everything to do with their approach to prayer and how important it is to be prepared on approach coming to God in an appropriate manner rather than coming to God in an inappropriate manner. I want to use a word picture right now that I think you can easily understand that will I want you to keep it in mind as we think about this. I want you to picture that you're flying in an airplane, you're the pilot, and you're coming in, and I want you to know, and I know this from some experience, that the way you approach the airport and the runway for landing will have everything to do with the success of your landing. The approach matters. You can't just go and set her down. You've got to approach properly. They have at airports, at developed airports, um, they have... Uh, What's called VASI lights or VASI indicators, V A S I. It stands for Visual Approach Slope Indicator, VASI lights. All it is is a system of lights that are on the ground, and if you're coming in just right, one set of lights is going to be red and the other set of lights is going to be white. And as long as one set Says red and one set says white. You know that your slope and you know that your approach is coming in just right. But guess what? If those lights, and you can see them easily when you're coming in in your plane, if you see those lights turn red, guess what? You're too low. You're too low. You're going to hit the oak trees at the front of the runway. Better get it up. You're not approaching correctly. If They turn white. If both turn white, guess what? You're coming in too high. You're going to overshoot your runway and dump in the river on the other side of the runway. You better get it down. Your approach matters for your success. I want you to kind of have that concept in mind. It really does matter even in Christ, covered with the blood of Christ. Our attitude and our heart and our holiness of life as we approach God, we must approach Him properly. Or our prayers will not be heard. Look, look what he says. First of all, in the phrase there, he says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. As I've already emphasized, I think the point is the holy part of the hands, not the hands, aren't the big deal. It's the holy hands. Holy means to be unstained by evil. To be unstained by evil. To be unpolluted, to be pure. You see, what Paul's point is, is that if you're going to come to God and you're going to pray, and evidently the men were getting up at the church in Ephesus, and they're raising up their hands, and as they're praying, even the people in the pew knew, those are polluted hands. They knew that it was hypocrites up front. And Paul says one of the things you better know when you stand up to pray, if God is going to hear your prayer, you better lift up unstained hands, unpolluted, uncorrupted hands. Now, does he mean use your Germex? No, it's it's a metaphor for your life. These hands, as I've served and what I've done and what I've been doing, I had better have clean hands and clean hands are only derived from a pure heart. You cannot have sin in your life and have clean hands and God says, don't bring those prayers to me. So the first thing I see Paul doing here, number one, is that you better, number one, first instruction, is concerning personal preparation. Personal preparation. Don't just come in here any old way. You've got to approach properly, and you have to come with unspotted, unstained hands. That is, as you lift them to pray, your life had better be pure and holy. It's pretty serious. The second thing he says is, You better pay attention to your number two, your interpersonal relationships. He wants number two, interpersonal evaluation. First of all, a personal preparation, holy hands. The second thing, interpersonal evaluation. Look what he says. Without anger or disputing. What's he talking about? He's talking about division in the body. He's talking about people that have been abusing and mistreating one another and living with open, unconfessed sin and and broken relationships, and then they're getting up in the church, and everybody knows it, evidently. Unholy hands and a disconnected life. Duplicity, hypocrisy. This is a good time for us to take just a few minutes and to click off a couple of verses in our Bible and do a quick Bible study on the reasons God doesn't answer prayer, particularly that relate to sin, to unholiness, to corruption. What are some of the things that might be common that we would deal with that would be in our lives that if we're not careful, we come to church, in particular at the leadership level, we get up front, deacons, elders, pastors, and we pray and these things are going on and God would say, just be quiet and sit down, man. I'm not going to hear that prayer. Those are unholy hands you're lifting up. You're not fit to pray. Let's do a quick Bible study. Let's start in the Old Testament. And a couple of these verses will be familiar, but I think they're worth reminding ourselves of. And let me click off for you in a short list some of the ways we dirty our hands or we are careless with our lives so that God will not hear our prayers. I call these prayer blockers. Prayer blockers. It's as though there's a ceiling on our prayer life and our prayer can't get through it because... We've approached God inappropriately. We have approached God inappropriately. The first is in Psalm 66, and it's verse 18. I want to read 17 through 20. Psalm 66, 17 through 20. Let's read it carefully. The psalmist says in Psalm 66, beginning with verse 17, I cried out to him with my mouth. His praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God surely listened and heard my voice in prayer. Praise be to God who has not rejected my prayer or withheld his love from me. Do you see the implication of the passage? He approached God with his worship and with his prayers and God received it. But he says, if I had been cherishing sin in my heart... God would not receive it. Prayer blocker number one is hidden sin. Prayer blocker number one, hidden sin, Psalm sixty six eighteen. 18. You see, this is a person that's going to stand before the people, stand before the Lord and lead in prayer, and they know they have unconfessed sin in their lives, in their life. This is a person who maybe has some secret sin going Nobody else knows about it. And they refuse to deal with it before a holy God. They even maybe know that God sees it, but then they'll say things in their mind like, God understands my issues. God and I really understand why I'm doing this. And in fact, if I weren't doing this, I would be doing this, which is far worse. It's a far greater thing of, of consequence. And so therefore, God knows that this little compartment in my life, this little lockbox... Little lock in the corner closet of my spiritual house has some sin that I'm just not dealing with it. Listen, I think that this is why preparation must begin before we get to the platform. It has to begin before you're called on to pray in a Sunday school class, before you're called on to pray publicly in the close of a service, before you gather for a missionary prayer meeting in public. Don't pray with dirty hands. And one of the reasons we have dirty hands is because we have unconfessed hidden sin in our lives. Prayer blocker number one, hidden sin. Prayer blocker number two is Proverbs 28.10. We'll just use an Old Testament passage for this since we're nearby. Psalms, then Proverbs 28, verse nine. I want you to use your Bibles and look up some verses here and a little bit of a Bible study This concept is re-taught in the New Testament in multiple places where it says that if we do not pray according to God's will, he won't answer our prayer. Or he says, if we pray according to God's will, he will answer our prayers. The point is, when you know what God has revealed to you and you pray differently than that, God does not answer your prayer. But look at the way Proverbs puts it in Proverbs 28, verse 9. If anyone turns a deaf ear to the law, even his prayers are detestable. That's strong language, isn't it? If you turn a deaf ear to the law, what's he talking about? He's talking about people who disobey and disregard the word of God. Prayer blocker number two, disregard and disobedience for the word of God. Knowing that God has spoken specifically about something, knowing that God has addressed a matter in his word, and you are circumventing it, you are directly disobeying God's word, do not expect God to answer your prayers. In fact, it is a wrong approach. It is something that if you knowingly are disregarding God's word, you knowingly are living in disobedience with God's word, and you come before God, he says, your prayer is despicable don't pray to me if you're not going to pay attention to my word. See, you're on the wrong approach. You haven't prepared properly to come in the presence of a holy God. Prayer blocker number three is pride and arrogance. Let's go to our New Testament, to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, take a quick look here. Thumbing in our Bibles, and it's good for you to know your books of the Bible so you can turn quickly. Matthew chapter 6, look at verse 5. And when you pray, Matthew 6, 5, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, to be seen by men. They're posturing, it's spiritual posturing. It's it's trying to make sure that everybody here knows that I'm pretty spiritual. I can talk the talk, I can pray the prayers but this person is doing it all for the wrong motives. They're doing it for their own pride. They're doing it because they're filled with spiritual pride and they want to be esteemed as something that they're really not. Let's look further at this concept in Luke chapter 18. Same concept, pride and arrogance. The prayer blockers of pride and arrogance. Look at the story Jesus tells in Luke's gospel in chapter 18. Luke 18. Luke 18, beginning with verse 1. Excuse me, beginning with verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness, verse 9, and looked down on everybody else, that would be the Pharisees, spiritually proud and arrogant, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers and evildoers and adulterers or even like this scumbate tax collector right over here. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So here you got a guy who's praying publicly and he says, Lord, thank you that I'm not like all these other people. He's praying out loud. He didn't go to his prayer closet like Matthew 6 further instructed. He wants everybody to know that he's spiritual. He wants everybody to know that he's not like everybody else and it's coming through in his prayer. I wonder if this was part of what was going on in Ephesus that Paul had to write to Timothy for Timothy to address with the congregation that men were standing before the church with dirty hands and one of the parts of the dirt on their hands was pride and arrogance and and everybody in the congregation knew that guy was a hypocrite who was praying. It's serious business, isn't it? To pray publicly? To lead people in worship? To deny yourself and to lift up Christ? It's the great battle of public Christian ministry. That I'm in front of a crowd and that it's not about me, but it's about Jesus and it's about His Word and it's about humility and obedience. It's why our men, our deacons, our elders, they need to have their hearts prepared before they pray. Our pastors that's why Saturday nights are so important at my house. That's why early Sunday mornings are so important. Lest the platform open and swallow us up as we would deserve. Will you turn with one, to one more passage? This one's pretty practical and it hits pretty close to home. No pun intended, but it's 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And there's one other prayer blocker. Stand before God, expecting your prayers to be heard. And there's hidden sin. There's pride and arrogance. There's disobedience and disregard. How about this? Prayer blocker number four, that perhaps was a problem in Ephesus that potentially could be a problem with us. Disrespect for my spouse. 1 Peter chapter 3. Did I say 4? 1 Peter chapter 3 beginning with verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. Look what he says. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. It's a prayer blocker, isn't it? This dominating, disrespectful, pride, arrogant, anger towards my spouse, putting them in their place, fussing and carrying on. It's directed directly to men. I suspect that it applies equally to women, that a wife could do the same thing to her husband and it would block her prayer life. The point is that if the marital relationship isn't at peace before the Lord, it can actually affect your prayer life. That's pretty scary, isn't it? It's pretty scary. So the Apostle Paul has two direct commands to the men. The men who would be expected to lead in worship. The men who would be expected to lead in public prayer. He says two things. First of all, pay attention to personal preparation. Make sure when you lift those hands in prayer, they are holy, unspotted, unstained with sin. You've dealt with this the best you know how before the Lord, through Christ, through the forgiveness of sin. Secondly, make sure you pay attention to interpersonal relationships, that you've done interpersonal evaluation and you know that you're not standing before the congregation while you're at dispute with people who are present to worship. We've suggested that there are four among many prayer blockers that could be represented in, unstained, in stained hands, let me just share two thoughts in conclusion and then we're done. First of all, I think one thing we have to get from these, this verse 8 of First Timothy 2 is that it is possible and it is serious to approach God inappropriately. It is possible and it is a serious thing to approach God inappropriately. That's why not just everybody gets to lead in worship. That's why it's a serious thing to stand before the people and to lead in prayer. That's why it's a serious thing to stand on these steps and be in the choir and be singing praise to God when you're leading in worship and you're lifting unholy hands before God. And that's a serious thing. You have come in with the wrong approach. You have not taken time to prepare yourself to come in so that when you lift your hands in praise or in prayer, They are clean and unspotted. It's a serious thing. Second thing and final thought is this simply. Number two, perhaps the most important thing about Sunday morning prayer is my Saturday evening preparation. Perhaps the most important thing about my Sunday morning worship is my Saturday evening preparation. See, we're not good at this, people. We are not good at this. We are good at flipping the switch, coming in, sitting down, talking to our neighbors about why the Mountaineers got ripped off with the goaltending call yesterday, non-call, and then standing up and singing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Oh man, I wonder if preachers going to go long. What is that all about? If you're worshiping and you're praying, are you lifting up unstained hands? Have you done anything to prepare? That's why Christian families and Christian couples and the Christian community should be very careful about what you do Saturday evening when you're going to come worship and pray Sunday morning. That's why... I don't think it's. I think it's incongruous to be off at some movie somewhere or doing something that is totally outside the framework of the will and the word of God. And then Sunday morning, me and God, we're tight, man. I put my ball cap on, man. I go put my shades on and go to go to worship. And it's an inappropriate approach. Perhaps the most important thing about Sunday morning prayer is Saturday evening preparation. Let's bow in prayer. Father, what a challenge for us. What a a confronting word the Apostle Paul really had tucked in there. That when we pray, that we would lift up holy hands before you. So Father, would you convict us about pride and arrogance and posturing spiritually. Convict us about hidden secret sin Convict us about being careless, about not evaluating our lives before we pray and before we worship. Convict us, Father, about our relationships with our spouse, our relationships throughout the body, that there not be anger and disputing that is not cared for and cleared up before we pray and worship. And that we as the men of Fellowship Bible Church would lead the way in a, in a holy, in a proper approach into your presence. Thank you for the grace and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ that covers us. Thank you that we have the Lord Jesus, this great mediator, that he represents us to you. But Father, help us not to be careless or callous or so convenience-oriented that we don't pay attention to what we're really about. Father, help us to Find the time to prepare our hearts to approach you with proper propriety. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.